And uh, so we'll just follow the form of her Tuesday nights um, and uh, sit for 40, 45 minutes and have a break for movement and we'll, you know, do some inquiry practice if that's of interest. And I'll talk about at least a little bit um, uh, from my perspective around inquiry and how that's so critical to our um, spiritual journey. So um, just inviting you, I just am noticing my own energy taking the subway from Grand Central, which I haven't done in about three years, and, and noticing in rush hour how amazing the energy is and how different it is than this room. And so whatever it takes for you to make that transition, you know, in the, in the, from the wet, wetness outside to the dryness, from the coolness to the warmth, from the day's activity into the stillness of the moment. So just allow yourself to settle in that way, just, just like nothing to be forced, but like a leaf falling, it is just so natural to come into presence, to come into your the physicality of your experience in this moment. Inviting your awareness to notice what's predominant in your experience in this moment. Whether it's the sound of the music, the sound of my voice, the heat of your hands touching the body, any aches in the sitting posture, noticing what's in the foreground, and then widening to notice what's in the background. Allow yourself to feel the dimensionality of your awareness. holding both the foreground and the background and the periphery. Notice as the sound of my voice invites you to very slowly open your eyes. Notice any thoughts that may arise when I say there will be no ending bell to this period because there is no end to your awareness. Just allowing the light to slowly come into your consciousness, allowing the stillness and the awareness that you have reinforced and cultivated in the last 45 minutes to be with you still, part of the imprinting of this practice. And allow yourself to move seamlessly with this practice into the period of movement, whether it's movement into the restroom or to get a cup of tea or to do a movement practice that you're accustomed to, a stretching. Or perhaps the movement is more subtle, but to allow the silence con to continue to hold 
the seamlessness of your practice as we practice together, moving together in the space for about 15 minutes coming back. I'm just I'm just smiling because you you folks clearly have this rhythm because you're it's exactly eight o'clock and everybody is perfectly <laughs> back in their seats and um, and really you know uh, it's interesting that um, I do that bellless meditation quite a lot because we have an idea sometimes of what the meditation period is and it and it has an ending to it or that we're used to um, sometimes the authority of the bell but really the the practice is about this continuity into um, all aspects of our life and um, you know regardless of what the sensations that are coming into our um, consciousness from the sixth sense doors, the sixth sense door being the mind as well. Um, but can we be aware of uh, that experience as opposed to being driven by that experience? Um, so I'm really happy to be here. Those of you who came in from the um, uh, the other room and also came in a little bit after we started. I am not Gina Sharp. Um, and uh, something came up and so I was at the Buddhist Teachers Conference in Omega and um, uh, it was easy for me to just slide into her role uh, for this evening. So I um, thank you for that, that opportunity to be with New York Insight again. And you know, it's the the conference is actually kind of sort of interesting. You know, more interesting than most conferences. You have um, uh, people who teach the Dharma from multiple lineages, and uh, I think there are thirty three teachers internationally. I think it comes from they come from about a dozen or more different countries, and uh, there are about two hundred and fifty gathered at Omega this this week and it um, and it's it's primarily for Dharma teachers in the West so um, how the Dharma is permeating the multiplicity of our cultures and it's a quite a diverse group in terms of um, from communities of color from um, uh, LGBTIQ communities, um, there's uh, a few gender non-conforming folks, um, people with different physical abilities, so it's, you know, um, it's exciting to see the direction that Dharma is, is um, flowing into, and it, uh, you know, I was sitting in the, the main hall, and um, uh, that that sense of of breadth of dharma isn't isn't new isn't new i mean the history of of these teachings even though they started in a particular location in northern india um, very quickly within a couple of generations you know, migrated across the Indian subcontinent into Central Asia and basically covered that, that entire region from what is um, uh, Iraq, Iran, all the way across the Silk Route. And people may remember the Banmian statues that were destroyed recently, but that, that is emblematic of how deep the Dharma had affected, you know, the whole, the multiplicity of cultures in Central Asia before it uh, migrated to Mongolia and China, and from Mongolia it went to Tibet, and, and I'm doing this dance because um, this is, it only made this, this 
journey through our humanity, different cultures, because the community supported the teachings over and over, infinite number of times. Um, and that's, a, that's, a, that's an incredible thing for um, it to come and land in our cultures in this incredibly urbanized, frenetic environment and still have the ability to create the stillness in the in in whatever we're doing in our lives um, in 2015 that is because of the support of these infinite number of beings sort of paying it forward through the practice of dana through the practice of generosity and um, supporting these multiplicity of teachers coming in, supporting New York Insight as a center, supporting, you know, um, we just had a, um, the very first, some of you may have heard, the very first meeting of uh, Western Buddhist teachers, leaders at the White House in mid-May. You know, just incredible that um, that it's beginning to, uh, I, I'm not sure that's good, it's, it has that much influence yet, but it's beginning to permeate. And the talk is, was that next year that uh, that meeting might be across the National Mall <clears throat> in, the, in the halls of Congress. And it's, you know, it's really, um, there's, a, uh, there's an excitement that I have in, in where the Dharma is going in, in this culture. So all of that, you know, is really the invitation to feel into how the Dharma has touched your life. Why are you here in this room? Why are you connected with New York Insight? And if, if this experience in any way has touched you in some way or, or helped you or supported you through, you know, a difficult time in your relationship or your job or, you know, our own internal uh, experience, you can't put a price tag on that, which is why these teachings are, are offered without a specific fee. But it doesn't mean they're they can't go unsupported. So the invitation is, is just like the generations um, before us to support them in whatever ways you can. Um, and, uh, and I love talking about Donna, so this is why this prolonged you know, um, uh, riff. But there's another piece that I wanted to add on a personal level is um, your practice in supporting New York Insight, the, um, uh, the teachers who are here, uh, and, and me. For, for me, your generosity in supporting me allows me to practice generosity. And um, so right before I, I arrived at uh, Omega, uh, one of my... Um, uh, colleagues at East Bay Meditation Center, who is, which is the center that I practice in in Oakland. Um, one of the teachers of color uh, who is at Omega um, got a, uh, a pretty um, difficult cancer diagnosis, and they're going to have to go through um, uh, chemo and stem cell replacement and uh, taking time off. So they had to cancel their teaching and and so I just wanted to uh, make that intention that whatever Donna that I receive from this teaching, because I didn't expect to teach tonight, uh, I want to give to them to, because I, even though their, their medical um, bills are covered by insurance, luckily, it's the life expenses, life expenses that I worry about, because I could feel their anxiety when I was sitting with them in the conference. And if there was anything that I could offer is a little bit of, um, a little bit of 
you know, that witnessing, that, uh, that compassion, that, that, you know, to alleviate some of that fear, some of that. Um, so I know that, that was a really long Donna talk. So, uh, but that was what I'd like to, to um, uh, offer to my practice as well. So I know that, you know, Gina usually does some inquiry, um, which is a beautiful practice because investigation and curiosity is the, is the uh, first of the seven factors. And it's, you know, the way that I like to um, uh, experience it is, is that it's really difficult for me to be, to stay mindful when I'm not interested in something, when I'm not curious. It's that curiosity that, that allows the attention to rest on a, on a subject, on an experience, on an object, um, on a feeling, even if it's difficult. And especially when it's pleasant, because that, you know, triggers the, um, the wanting, the desire, the wanting more. So the curiosity of what is the experience like without needing to go after or push away is such an interesting place for me to, to notice so that I can notice all these impulses, but I don't necessarily need to act on them. So that, that aspect of curiosity um, really is um, uh, a benefit to our ability to stay in practice. You know, like staying on the object, what keeps us coming back to the practice over and over again? What allows us to return, just like returning to the breath, returning to the body sensations? Sometimes we get distracted and we may not sit, you know, as as intently as we would like on a, or as frequently as we would like. What allows us to come back after that period of um, hiatus? And, and often it's that, so that place of investigation or curiosity. So really just opening the floor for questions about your practice, um, questions that would Um, benefit you coming back to practice to deepen in some way. I, in a previous life, um, I was a uh, national park ranger, and um, one of the things that uh, was challenging was whenever you went on a nature hike, you would always get somebody who would try to stump the ranger. You know, the questions that, whether it's from kids or from adults even, you know, like, why is this? Why, you know, why did the rocks, you know, and, and uh, I wasn't practicing the precepts, so sometimes I would get really annoyed and just say whatever was on my mind. But <laughs> that's not the case now. So if I don't know, you won't hear it. I mean, you know, you won't, I will say I don't know. But um, so really... You know, the questions are coming from that place of, of um, you know, that openness of, of really curiosity of, of please. Okay. Be repressed, right? So then, it's it's important to like actually 
turn toward that thing and really look at it hard. Right. In those cases, the, the way it passes through. Right. Um, but how do you tell the difference is my question. You know, sometimes it's obvious. You know, if, you, if you're annoyed with someone on the street, you know, it's, it's usually easy to let that go. Right. Um, and if, you're, you know, if I'm really annoyed at my wife over something important, usually I need to investigate that. But there are lots of things in the middle. You know, um, I'm just a little bit annoyed at my wife. Right. Um, right. You know, she <laughs> um, did something that annoyed me, like left a towel on the floor or whatever it is. And then I'm, I'm often not sure, you know, whether the wisest course is to just let it go, or whether the wisest course is to really investigate that thought and feeling. And I'm wondering if you have any advice about that. Um, yes and no. Um, so I had something that came up similar to your your experience with your wife in, in the sense that... that um, uh, um, my husband got annoyed at somebody, and I got annoyed at his annoyance. You know, I was judging his judgment uh, of someone else, and it was like, uh, and um, what I what I really began to feel was not so much um, the irritation, but the attachment the attachment to um, wanting him to be different. And that piece of investigation helps me not let go of thoughts, because thoughts uh, are so helpful in, in our life. You know, we have to make judgments on, on, on all sorts of different levels. The question that I have for myself is, where am I attached? And am I, um, am I attached to either the greed, hatred, or delusion? Because there are times in which, you know, we can, we can be attached to the ignorance being bliss. You know, like, I just don't know and I don't care. And that can, you know, that can have its own sort of outcomes. Um, but that's the paradox of, our practice that um, you know we have these invitations these instructions and it's not one or the other you know it's not letting go of all your thoughts it's not keeping all of your thoughts where is the middle path where where's that gray area and how do I determine it for my life you know so how do I internalize that that ability to discern to um, have a, a wise relationship in the moment that it comes up. You know, can I completely let it go that Stephen was irritated at somebody that we both like? Um, or is there some experience that he's not seeing that he's harming that person or me? You know, I don't, I won't know until I actually look into it and am curious without um, being occluded by my judgment itself that he should be a certain way. But to investigate it, you know, so what are, what are the conditions that are causing it? What's the potential outcomes? And in that place of just asking the question, there's some space. Does this make sense? You know, the, the, the larger the picture that, that I have, the more questions I can ask. And so this is where questions, I think, are also a skillful means, like questioning my own beliefs, questioning my own, you know, and this is where the, the um, unconscious attitude towards thoughts may not be so helpful, is, you know, there's a thought, we usually believe it, I mean, we believe almost every single thought that we have, including the ones that are so self-destructive and, you know, demeaning of ourselves and telling us that we're not worthy. You know, if we heard them from anybody else, we wouldn't believe it. But 
So can we begin to question that? Not in a judgmental way, but, you know, is this real? So, thank you. Hmm. Please. Hi, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, you just touched on something that I wanted to talk about. You talked about demeaning self-destructive thoughts, demeaning thoughts. Um, that's what I wanted to ask you about. Um, I wonder if you could discuss the um, relation, that relation, the second foundation of mindfulness, mindfulness of feeling. Because I think, I, I think maybe that's related to the mindfulness of body and, and breath is something that's, for me, it's pretty accessible. It's mm. easy to understand. Mm. That's what I do here. Mm -hmm. it's, mm -hmm. it's the mindfulness of the breath. And, mm -hmm. But mindfulness of feeling, I, I, have, I think that what the Buddha meant by that, my impression is that it's not feeling, let's say, I'm feeling irritated in my back or my knees hurt or that kind of feeling. I think that's mindfulness of body. Mm -hmm. What I'm talking about, and I want to want your opinion about it, mm -hmm. is that when I'm uh, meditating here, the thoughts that come through and protrude on my my meditation are exactly they're they're hurtful and mm -hmm. they're harmful and mm -hmm. the words you used uh, self-deprecating. Right. It's a constant thing that intrudes. Right. And those thoughts cause feelings in my body. Right. Let's say I'll get these things that come in that, that tend to be destructive, unreally, really unskillful thoughts. Right. They might cause me my heart to start beating faster, or constriction in my chest, or this kind of grumbling in my stomach or something. Right. And that's the kind of feeling that I think he's talking about in the second second uh, Got it. foundation of mindfulness. Got it. So what happens to me, and I want to know what you think about this, is I go from, that happens, I go from concentration, uh, from awareness of the thought to the awareness of that very unpleasant feeling in my right. chest or stomach. And I, I abide with that right. instead of the breath. And it, it seems to pass. But I, my focus goes on that feeling in my body. Right. And I'm wondering how you, what you think about that practice, going instead of from the breath to that second mindfulness, right. second foundation of mindfulness. Right. So there's a couple of things in, in your question or your, the, the way that you're describing your experience. One is um, the practice that you're describing is quite skillful in terms of the, um, the, uh, the, 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 painful experience, the feeling, the emotion, and dropping into the physicality of it. So that's, um, you're actually dropping from the third foundation, which is um, the realm of uh, mind thought, mind heart, thoughts and emotions, into the first foundation. So that's a skillful way of being present for those difficult emotional experiences. What I do want to make a clarification and distinction on is, is that the second foundation, so the translation of Vedana is quite specific. It's actually not feeling, it's not emotion. What they're um, pointing to is feeling tone, Vedana. And so what Vedana is, is that every single experience that we have, whether it's mental, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional, whether it's spiritual, every single moment that we live can be characterized as one of three things. It's that global. And the three things are that either the experience is pleasant, either the experience is not pleasant, or the experience is neutral. Or in the classic um, definition, not pleasant and not unpleasant. That's what the second foundation is, is referring to. And the power of um, the second foundation 
is that we can get lost in so many of our sensations, whether, you know, and I was mentioning the six sense doors, the five senses that we normally um, associate with in Western psychology or Western biology. But in Buddhist psychology, the mind is the sixth sense door. The mind heart, actually, citta, because um, in Buddhist psychology, the, the thinking mind isn't different from the feeling heart. Uh, that's actually common to most Asian um, uh, traditional practices. So um, when we get lost in any of those sensations, just coming back to the second foundation of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral begins to give us some space, begins to give us some, some um, space, not detachment, but non-attachment. For example, if one has chronic pain, the second foundation is really helpful in managing that chronicity. Because we can think of the pain as one experience, this global experience that's never going to go away. It's, it's um, always going, it's who I am. So this is the experience that, that we can identify with. But actually, when you look in greater and greater detail into the experience of pain, it's so many different sensations. It's so, you know, if you begin to parse it from, from moment to moment, it's this stinging, it's this, you know, burning, it's this, you know, heat, it's this coolness. It's unpleasant, unple really unpleasant. Oh, there's a space in which it's neutral. And the ability to refine the awareness on this level allows us to hold the larger experience. You know, that, that whether, it's a, whether it's a mental discomfort or a physical discomfort. And so, um, uh, you know, even when we... Um, uh, so if, if anybody in this room ever, you know, get angry, you know, have you ever gotten angry at your anger or depressed at your depression? You know how the, the emotions feed each other. When you're aware of the anger, you're not lost in it. You still, the sensations may still be there. The experience may still be there. But we're not unconsciously feeding it. And this is the power of the second foundation. To notice, this is really unpleasant. I actually don't have to feed it. I don't have to do anything. Noticing the impulse and not, not needing to respond. And actually, this is, uh, I had forgotten this piece, but when, because I, you know, I consider myself an aversive personality type in Buddhist psychology. There are three different major psychologies. There's the greedy type, there's the aversive type, and there's the deluded type. Um, you know, when you walk into a new room, the greedy type um, wants, you know, the, the pleasant things in the room. The, the aversive type starts rearranging the, the furniture because it's not, it's not perfect. And the deluded type says, where am I? You know, so um, because I'm an aversive type, anger comes up really big for me. And, and the extremes of rage and all of that stuff. So which is why I you know, was um, a substance abuser for a long time, just trying to manage all of that pent-up rage. What I discovered in the second foundation, as I was practicing with rage, is, is that rage has a lot of pleasant feelings to it. And when I am not conscious of those pleasant feelings, like self-righteousness, you know, like, um, uh, you know, that, that, that adrenaline that sometimes comes up. I'll feed it. I'll, you know, it, it's an unconscious pattern that when something feels pleasant, we're just going to want more of it. So even in the pleasantness, if I can just notice 
oh, that self-righteousness feels really pleasant. I have a choice point. And that choice is, is this going to lead to greater freedom in my experience or is it going to lead to more suffering? That's the choice point that is always offered to us when we're mindful. So, um, so the long answer to your, your, your question, this, the second foundation is really like, it's one of my favorite places to practice because it sounds so simple and it just is so applicable to every experience that arises. But I also just want to go back and reinforce that when you are dealing with um, you know, that self-judgment, that self-critic, that, um, that voice that, you know, they say that, uh, some psychologists say that, that thoughts, the definition of a thought is self-talk. We're just talking to ourselves. Um, is to, to feel it in the body and as we meet that experience for what it is, as we meet it, whether it's in the second foundation of just noticing whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, whether it's noticing it in the body of, of whether it's constricting or vibrating, you're just noticing it exactly for what it is. You're not pushing it away because you don't like it. You're not unconsciously feeding it because it's pleasant, because this is what we usually do. And that is loving-kindness. That, that, that allowing yourself in this moment to be exactly who you are, even if I'm raging, it means that I'm not lost in it. I'm just acknowledging this is where I am. Can I be with this? This is where mindfulness and metta are intertwined and we practice sometimes them separately but the outcome is that choice of freedom and it's a choice that all of you have made otherwise you wouldn't be coming back here over and over again and so um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll just <laughs> um, I love the Satipatthana so um, the last thing I'll say is, is that going through any of the four foundations, you get to see all of the teachings. You know, it's, that's, the, that's the, um, uh, the, the prism, that's the, you know, the multifaceted jewel of the Dharma. As you go through a teaching that interests you and you begin to see all of them anyway even the ones that you don't relate to or don't, you know, understand. That's how um, interconnected the teachings are. Thanks for, you, you had a question right, right in back? Yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, I have a surprise to see you here. I've been introduced a couple of times to the precepts on diversity that you've written. And, you know, they all sort of speak deeply to me, but there's one that I've been thinking about mm -hmm. that says something along the lines of aware of the suffering it causes, um, not seeing oneself as superior to others mm -hmm. or inferior to others. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess it's one that I've been sort of working with for a while, and I, I grew up under circumstances in which, you know, I felt like I needed to be to be all right. right. And I know that I'm not alone in that. Um, right. But some of the ways that it plays out is like I myself still being pretty competitive with people that I care deeply about, even. Right. Um, and it's really uncomfortable and kind of painful to yeah. find myself wanting to deny or defend my resources or hoping they won't. So I missed that last piece? You know, to deny or defend my resources or uh -huh. right. be at, become as good at something as I am. Right. It's, you know, it's really, it's really uncomfortable. Yeah. And I'm aware that that comes from, you know, sort of fears around inferiority and all that. And mostly in my practice, I'm trying to just have some not judgment of it and just to notice it. But, um, right. you know, it's, it's hard. So I'm, I guess I'm wondering if you have any 
uh, insight you can offer into that practice or anything, yeah, anything you can share about that? Um, there was something that you said that I wanted to pick up on. Um, something about where it was coming from and uh, I'm not exactly sure the word that you used, but what I wanted to piggyback on that is, is that where it's coming from is it's coming from our humanity. The comparing mind, um, you know, if you believe the, um, the cosmology of enlightenment, you know, there are different stages of, of, of um, Sotapanna, Anagami, and, and, and Arhant, you know, the stages of enlightenment. It is said that you don't give up the comparing mind until the very last stage. So that means, you know, I don't know if I have any insight <laughs> for you on that, other than it's so deeply human that um, the actual um, instruction that the Buddha um, wrote in the scriptures that the precept was was drawn from was suffering is created when we compare ourselves and think of ourselves as superior, inferior, or the same. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. You know, and so in a way, that really is like um, allowing just this diversity of life to completely be, not needing it to be, not needing any of us to be the same or different. You know, that, that is pointing us to, to our ideas of how I should be, how you should be, how they should be. And, and there, there's a larger field beyond all of that. Um, so that helps me hold the judgment, to hold the comparing mind. That maybe there is a use for it, but when it, there's not a use for it, that this is, you know, the pattern that I'm working with, you know, going upstream, trying to recondition. And so, just noticing the comparing mind when it's painful. And again, not needing to feed it, not needing to make it go away. And in that way, that inclination is still towards kindness, even though you may not be feeling it in the moment. Um, I have this um, mantra, whether I do it for myself or others is, is of course I want to be, I, I want to meet the moment as it is with love. I want to meet myself with love. I want to meet others with love. If I can't meet someone with love, can I just be kind? If I can't be kind, can I be non-judgmental? If I can't be non-judgmental, can I not cause harm? And if I cannot not cause harm, can I cause the least harm possible? So even when I can't live into my intentions, even when I'm labeling myself as a failure, the practice is still inclining me to kindness, that I'm doing the best that I can, even if I'm caught in that superior, inferior, same struggle. So it's a, um, he mentions this superior, inferior, same, several times in, in, in the suttas. So it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting place to practice. Thank you. I don't remember the off the top of my head, but um, I'm sure that it's searchable. <laughs> Hi, I have a little bit of a different question for you since you were at Omega with many other teachers. Mm -hmm. um, a month or so ago, um, my managers at work went to some sort of training and they all came back with... Your managers? They went to some training yes. and they came back with these placards that said, be here now. And then I found out that um, 
there's mindfulness and um, being in the workplace at, at work. Yes. And um, I know that this is a, a topic that's very um, prevalent right now. Oh, current. Yep. Yeah. So <laughs> I wonder if, since you were just among teachers, if there's a view towards it and um, particularly whether it could lead to more ethical, responsible behavior in business. You know, I think it's the it's the topic of the it's the topic of the culture right now because mindfulness is exploding in so many different arenas, and um, and so John Kabat-Zinn is at the conference, so you know that representation of of secular is there, but it's also true that that you know his initial inspiration for MBSR is. Our practice, so um, uh, and the way you know, I have, I also have mixed feelings about it. I don't know, and 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 perhaps this is just don't know mind um, riffing a little bit. But um, uh, mindfulness, if it's directed towards ethics, can do what you're describing, but. Mindfulness alone doesn't necessarily engender that. It takes effort. It takes, you know, coming back to um, uh, what causes non-harm. And, and a lot of business, at least in our capitalistic economy, is created on more. And more is one of the aspects of more can be greed. So um, I used to um, be in marketing and one of the things that I learned when I was reading about early Apple development of the, um, the, um, the Apple technology was that they don't market what you need. They, mar they, they don't market what you want. They market what you will want. And so, you know, how do we bring ethics to that? It's a really interesting place. Um, what really causes non-harm in terms of um, distribution of wealth, in terms of, you know, the, the, the complexities of our food industry, for example. Um, and this is the invitation of both mindfulness and dharma in our in our culture the fact that you know that that the dharma can enter the stream of politics that politics is not out you know our white house meeting that some of us were at as i see you know uh, this has possibilities but it's not a guarantee because it takes our it takes our in, it takes that eightfold path takes the intention, it takes the discernment, it takes, you know, all of the, the sila, the, um, the action, the speech, the, um, uh, and the mindfulness and concentration. So, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. In back, please. Um, hi, thank you very much. Uh, a lot of questions come up um, when I listen to you. The last, the latest question that came up, so I'll stick with that one, is... Um, how does, uh, you know, you hear people a lot of talk, you use the word want. It's like, what do you want in your life or mm -hmm. what are your goals? And I know from my own experience, you know, I went through 48 years of just, you know, chasing this and chasing that and compulsive and all these things. And suddenly you find yourself turning your life upside down or slowing it down or going on a, a quest, so to speak. And um, how, how can meditation you know, really help you find out what you want. Um, because that seems to be an elusive thing, even for me. People say, you know, what do you want? What is it, what is it you want? What do you want from me? Right. What do you want? And I'm like, I can't get the words out, you know? Right. Um, and so, so, you know, it's a, it's a great question. I would, I would, again, ask yourself, you know, that question, that, 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 
process of asking questions, being curious, what are the different ways of framing that question? What do I want? Is it, is it around the second foundation of satisfying pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? You know, do I need, you know, am I under so much stress right now? Um, do I need some stress reduction? Do I need to relax? Do I need the pleasant sensations? Is the want deeper? You know, there's... Um, so the way that I would maybe frame it is, what is my aspiration? What is my aspiration in life? What am I feeling called to? The Buddha in his life was called to something, that he was ineffable for a long time. He tried different spiritual paths, he, uh, and, and he learned by trial and error. You know, that he learned by the things that didn't work for him and recalibrated where he was going and, and yet there was something calling him that he eventually left his palace and, and it was, you know, the four messengers, he saw that, that monastic walking in the field and, and there was something that called him to depart from the conventionality of his life which had a lot of pleasure to it. There was something that he aspired to, even when he couldn't put it to words. So aspiration is related to respiration, right? And that middle word is about spirit. It's also related to respiration, so it's related to this practice of the breath. So what is the spirit calling you to do? That has given me the most fulfillment when I've answered or I've, I've, I've gone in the direction of that question. Because a lot of the other wants, a lot of the other desires, uh, even if I were to completely fulfill them, didn't lead very far. Didn't, didn't lead to what the Buddha was searching for, which was this aspect of freedom. And um, and so you you learn by trial and error. At least this is how I did. You know that that um, when I first went into recovery, everything was horrible. You know, it just was the pits. You know, sort of giving up everything that made me feel good, even though it didn't make me feel good. So that piece I knew. And, you know, it was this trial and error of, of, so what gives me a sense of freedom? What gives me a sense of relaxation into to who I am in this moment? And those are the small insights. You know, first it was the meditation practice. And then, you know, from the mindfulness practice, for me at least, there was a direct connection with the heart. And I began to understand, or not even understand, I began to feel what I had always been told of, with which, which was love. But I had never knew, I had never knew how to go there. And, and so in that, in that verification of my experience, I stepped further into the practice. I, you know, that's where faith comes in. You, you, um, intention is, part of the root word of intention is to stretch. So when you have faith, you stretch a little bit beyond what your, your levels of comfort are. And, and you're supported by this, this verified experience and you go further and, um, so Tsukmi Rinpoche says, you know, enlightenment can be sort of revelatory, but most often it's small moments many times. And that's what verifies our faith to keep coming back. Just like, you know, I know that's a 12-step phrase, but, you know, you keep coming back to the breath. You keep coming back to the practice. You keep coming back to this group. You keep coming back to that which verifies your faith and experience that 
there's some freedom from the past patterns that we've been involved with. Thanks also for being here tonight mm. for us. Um, on this quest for freedom, I get the notion of wanting to um, disassociate or let go of negative things. Positive things are harder in a way, but the one that really gets to me is, you know, there's a handful of people on this earth that I love, and the notion of sort of, you know, the whole no-self piece and just completely letting go of, of that connection, I just can't kind of cross that bridge. Mm. Um, and should I? I mean, it, you know, love of my daughter, for instance. Right. I just, I don't imagine ever being able to kind of be okay with that going away. Mm. Um, I, I'm stuck, or is that, you know, an okay thing? Since it's love. I mean, it's, you know, it's a mother's love. Right, right. Any help for me here? I don't know if you need to be in any other place, but just to be recognizing where you are. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, the teaching of anatta or non-self is an incremental practice that is not, it's, it's not about um, focusing it on one person or, um, uh, or ourselves. It's about, can we have a larger experience of life than what we think is happening. So, you know, for example, um, I, I go, I'll go back to the experience of anger because I consider myself an expert. Um, when someone, so when, um, I don't know if you've had this experience, but when someone is angry at me and I did absolutely nothing wrong, that energy just goes right through me. It doesn't land. And that's when I have a sense of not personalizing it. That's, that's a little bit, that's a little step in terms of uh, non-identification. Um, but, but again, I get it when it's the negatives, the delusion. I get it when it's the negatives, the mm -hmm. delusion, the mm -hmm. anger, the greed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It just seems different when it's something as profoundly wonderful as love, you know? Maybe. I mean, you know, my father passed about four years ago, and right. we were extremely close. And um, I don't know if I ever went through a classic period of grieving. Because really, he's, he's with me tonight. You know, I feel his energy. I, you know, and I was very fortunate because I was able to, to resolve many unresolved things that, you know, a gay boy who's a child of immigrants in a, you know, multi-class family might not have resolved. So I was extremely lucky in having that, um, that sense of peace with him. And the things that he taught me that I discarded come back over and over again. Not in a, not in a blaming way, but in a way that he's reteaching me. You know, these are, these are ways that the memories are, are actually supporting my development now. So, and I love him dearly. And, um, and, and there's a way in which, uh, because of, of how I talk about him with my partner, with my friends, um, he's not just my father anymore. You know, he's, he's an archetype of father to, to Stephen, to, and uh, it's, it's just very interesting. So, uh, you know, just to explore, is that, is, the, is what we're experiencing the only thing that's possible? Just to be curious about it, just to ask questions.
Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So I think we're running out of time. And just tremendous appreciation for this group and uh, your practice and for showing up on a, on a rainy night. I didn't expect this weather in New York. But um, so let's just sit for a moment and dedicate the merit. Feeling the collective intentions of everybody in this room. and the practice that brought all of us here. That this practice is so difficult to do in isolation. So difficult that it was actually invited to do together. That we awaken together in support of each other. And in the ultimate act of generosity and dana, we offer all the blessings, all the well wishes, all the benefits of our practice, not just for ourselves and our loved ones and our close circles, but extending those well wishes and benefits to all beings in all worlds and all directions. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.